Hey, all you cool people. Boyser from Martin is back for what I guess we can call season three. In the break that I had taking time away from the last season, I had moved to Austin, Texas. I am now the director of hospitality slash general manager for Austin Beer Works, and I am absolutely loving my time here in the beautiful city of Austin, Texas. Before I decided to bring this podcast back, I knew I wanted to change something about it, um, and I didn't really know what that was, but after a few months of thinking about it, I've decided that I'm going to change the format of the podcast a little bit. So essentially, every podcast, I'm going to ask my guests the same questions. Yes, there will be other questions asked beyond that, but I want to give everyone a chance to answer those questions to give their different perspective. I think it could lead to some really unique content. And to be honest, it saves me a lot of time coming up with questions. And I've never been as busy as I am with my new job in my new city. So I think it'll create some really cool content and I'm excited for her to listen to it. And I had the pleasure of having Caroline Wallace, the executive director of the Texas Craft Brewers Guild, as my first guest for this new season. It was a special podcast because Caroline is my executive director as I am employed by a brewery in Texas. As always, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the episode. Hello, everybody. I am joined with Caroline Wallace. Um, Caroline is the executive director of the Texas Craft Brewers Guild. Um, obviously, this is my first podcast living in Austin, Texas. So it's really cool to have Caroline as my first guest for quote unquote season three, as she is my executive director um, working for Austin Beer Works. So glad to finally have her on. She has been on my radar for a couple of years now. So um, happy to be her. Happy to have her as the first guest back in uh, this new, you know, journey of this podcast. Thanks, Kinsey. Thanks for having me on, and welcome to Austin. <laughs> yes, uh, w- you know, I am thinking about doing a podcast where I just talk about Austin because it's it's essentially really different from where I, uh, you know, grew up in the Midwest, and I'd love to just kind of like talk to people about you know the differences. I'm loving it. Don't get me wrong, but. It, it's very different. Um, so I think I'll save that one for another podcast. But like I mentioned, you are the executive director of the Texas Craft Brewers Guild. So my first question is kind of explain what that role is. Sure. Yeah, I've uh, been the executive director of the Texas Craft Brewers Guild just since May of this year. Um, our former executive director, Charles Vallenrott, retired after 10 years with the guild, actually. Um, so I started as our events manager back in 2015 uh, and then moved into a deputy director role um, and now have been our ED since uh, earlier this year. Um, But, you know, as, uh, you know, pretty much all 50 states have a brewer's guild, um, like a lot of trade associations and other industries, our goal is to advance the rights of our members. Um, So we really have a kind of a three-pronged mission and approach. We focus on uh, marketing and promotion of Texas craft beer, education for Texas craft brewers on how to run better businesses, brew better beer, um, education for consumers as well kind of goes along with that. Um, and then advocacy is a really big part of that. So it's legislative advocacy, trying to improve the landscape for brewers in the state, um, 
you know, reform some very outdated beer laws, which we have done um, a very successful job over over the last 10 years, but Texas had a very <laughs> long way to go. So there's still more work to be done. Um, and then less glamorous, but kind of um, uh, regulatory advocacy as well. So working with the Texas Alcohol and Beverage Commission um, for more, um, you know, transparent um, and business friendly approaches to their, their approach of interpreting the law. So you mentioned, and we were talking about this off air, because, you know, I've moved here from another state. So I had to learn all the new, you know, as a manager, you kind of have to learn all the new Texas laws, what can and can't be done. One of the your biggest accomplishments, and I guess I'm kind of already skipping ahead to one of my questions is, you know, I, I was going to ask you, what what is your biggest accomplishment so far working with the Texas Craft Brewers Guild? But I would assume if I'm going to assume anything, it'd be the beer to go, correct? Yeah, I think so, so. Can you ex- yeah. can you explain you know you know what the new beer to go law is and what was previous and how you all work to change that? Sure. So Texas, like um, a lot of states, but not all states, we have different licenses for manufacturing breweries and for brew pubs. Um, both of those licenses, again, have come a long way. Brew pubs didn't even exist in Texas until 1993. Uh, it was until 2013 that a brew pub could sell their beer outside of the four walls of their establishment. And it wasn't also until 2013 that a manufacturing brewery like Austin Beer Works uh, could legally operate a tap room. So before that, you had this very interesting system in Texas where um, either you go to a brew pub, you try beer you loved, and you'd say, man, can I get mm-hmm. this at the grocery store? Or is this on at the bar near my house? And it'd be like, nope, you can take a growler home, but you'll not find this anywhere but here. And then you go to a manufacturing brewery, and you would pay like 10 or $15 for a souvenir glass and three tokens mm-hmm. and take a tour and try some beers along with it. Um, so that changed in 2013. Um, but kind of one of the final fi- or biggest pieces of that, that that didn't get accomplished that year and that became um, you know, our number one priority legislatively for every session that followed was the beer to go piece of that. So for manufacturing breweries, um, while we finally in 2013, a little before my time with the guilds, um, but certainly not before my time as being a plugged in uh, craft beer fan in Austin, achieved that legalization of tap rooms and drinking on premise, um, you could not buy a six pack or any quantity, a growler, any quality of beer to go from a manufacturing brewery. So that left um, over 100 breweries in Texas that could not sell you a six pack, a bottle, a growler, a crowler, mm-hmm. anything to go home from the brewery. Um, so yeah, we fought for that every session. And finally in 2019 through like um, such a, a powerful coalition we built, I mean, truly um, it, it really took our legislative champions firing off c- cylinders. It took our members and our board members getting engaged. It took the public getting really engaged and vocal um, and really leveraging them to sign petitions and call and write and tweet their legislators um, a ton of media strategies and op-eds and, you know, just social media grassroots. Um, it just really took everything we could throw at it to get it across the finish line. But finally, uh, we got beer to go past in 2019. It became the law of the land in September of 2019. And I just you know, shudder to think if that hadn't happened with knowing, knowing what did happen six months later uh, when our state right. shut down, um, you know, it, it would have, it, it already has been, you know, the hardest, I think the, the most challenging time for our industry since you know, prohibition. Um, <laughs> if we hadn't had that, then, you know, Texas would have been in a, an even darker spot. Yeah, and I want people to think about that. Until 2019, which was three years ago, you couldn't go into a tap room in Texas and take beer to go. I mean, when when I learned this working here, I was like, I was so blown away. I'm like, that was only three years ago. And they were like, 
yeah, that's why it's a big deal. We still have posters all over the tap room talking about like beer to go because it's such a, a huge thing that they can do now. Um, but there still is a size limitation on it. Essentially, I think tap rooms can sell only up to, I feel like I should know this, 288 ounces. Yeah, that's correct. Go. So, so if you think about like 12 ounce cans, that's a case of 12 ounce yes, cans. Yes. Um, brew pubs, so we, there's not yeah. an individual limit. So you can buy like a keg to go or uh, three cases to go from a brew pub, but for manufacturing breweries, um, it's a case yes. uh, essentially. Yeah. So ex- explaining that to your customers is a little bit harder because um, they'll, they'll come in and they'll come up to the bar with like three cases of beer and we have to tell them like one at a time and you know there's obviously ways to, to be around that if it's a Find couple they can each buy one yeah. right yeah, yeah. but it, it, it's it's definitely funny and there's you know some other weird quirks that Texas Law is, you know is different than everyone else but um, it's just it was crazy to me to come in here and learn that only three years ago beer cannot be sold to go which is a huge accomplishment um, for the Texas Craft Brewers Guild, since you know Texas is such a large state, uh, gosh, I'm sure so many obviously breweries um, benefited from that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we were really the last state in the country where no manufacturing brewery could sell any <laughs> quantity of beer to go. So that was, you know, that was one of our talking points at legislative session. We're like, okay, wow. wineries, distilleries, and brew pubs in Texas can all sell uh, sell you products to go. Manufacturing breweries in 49 other states can sell you products to go. Um, and we actually, even that previous year, had worked um, both party conventions, and it was in both party platforms, Republican and Democratic Party platforms in the state of Texas, that breweries should be able to sell beer to go. So that was another talking point we really employed. It's like, this isn't a partisan issue. This is a bipartisan issue. It's common sense. It's a small business. Right. Like, there's no logical explanation <laughs> for why this this shouldn't be the law of the land. So one of my other questions, and I think we kind of, you know, answered, and maybe it's not, I was going to ask you, what is your your most significant accomplishment with the, the Texas Craft Brewers Guild? Would it have been, I know you weren't um, executive director at the time, but would that have been your answer? Or is there something else that comes to mind? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I started with the Texas Craft Brewers Guild in late 2015. Um, for those that don't know, Texas legislature is one of the only ones in the country has a unique uh, a scheduling of we, the legislature only meets every spring, every other year. So that's another part of why progress has been um, slower in Texas than many people would like is our legislature only meets for a few months every other year to begin with. So just those windows of opportunity are, are less frequent. Um, so yeah, I started in late 2015. So my first legislative session was 2017. And we actually had a bad bill shoved down our throats that passed that legislative session. Um, extremely complicated bill that limited taproom rights for breweries, but through this kind of elaborate system of if then, uh, with lots of carve outs, um, I could go into that if you want to be really mad or just bored, bored to tears. But, um, for my first legislative session with the guild to kind of experience with our team, what a defeat felt like, I think it really galvanized all of us to go into that 2019 session, you know, um, with putting everything we had into the the effort to get beer to go past. It was also a unique session because it was, um, the Texas legislature, um, puts state agencies every 12 years or so different state agencies go under what's called a sunset process. And, um, kind of the origin of that is basically it's, uh, the idea is to put it in front of the legislature to determine if it should even exist anymore. Um, and, you know, nine times out of 10, of course, they say it should exist. But basically, it's the chance to kind of pass an uh, agency specific omnibus bill that modernizes the agency, improves how it can um, effectively serve people and be efficient and that kind of thing. So 
Beard Ago actually, um, as a standalone bill, never made it, never even got a committee hearing. Um, the bill was DOA. Um, we What we did was take took advantage of the fact that that session was a sunset session and there was going to be an alcohol bill that was going to pass. Um, and Eddie Rodriguez, our legislative champion, he's a, a was a state rep uh, here in Austin, attached uh, Beard Ago as an amendment to that bill in one of the most dramatic <laughs> um, things that ever went down, I think, on the floor of the Texas legislature, which is saying a lot <laughs> in the House. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it actually failed at first. And then they had to do a recount because um, people were doing what's called ghost voting for their neighbors, uh, pressing the button oh, for the neighbors who are not present. Um, and then it was recounted and we narrowly won. Um, but along with that bill, there were also several other really good things that were in that bill for brewers. Um, so we had some reforms to our label approval process here in Texas um, prior to that bill. Sometimes folks, very often, <laughs> folks, uh, beers would take, we had a, uh, for brewers in other states, you probably file for COLA and that's similar to what we do now. But at the time, we had to we had a state level label approval process and your beer needed to be finished so you could submit a sample for lab testing in tandem with that so the TABC would get receive your sample test it make sure you're you know you weren't lying about your alcohol content mm-hmm. those kind of things and review your label to make sure that you weren't making any false claims or there weren't any errors or things like that um, and the testing actually didn't take that long but sometimes the label approval process could take 30, 45 days, and that's finished yes. beer that you have in a tank that you're supposed to not legally sell until that right. beer has a label approval. So made some reforms to that. Now we go off of COLA and kind of more of a perfunctory process with the state. It's still not a perfect process, and it's still the state timeline can tick up longer than I know many of our brewers would expect, but um, it eliminated the mandatory product testing requirement. So it means that you can plan ahead better and not have that beer right. sitting in the tank. Um, so that's huge. We also got rid of a really outdated um, distinction in Texas between what's considered beer and what's considered ale. So prior to 2019, um, a, a say a Vienna lager that was 5.2% uh, would be considered an ale in Texas. Anything over 5% had to be uh, considered an ale in Texas. You, you can tell yeah. maybe <laughs> not beer people made that law because yeah. obviously right. a Vienna lager is not an ale. Yeah, it was kind of a post-prohibition holdover that had some mm-hmm. has some interesting origins. But what was wild is that these beer and ale in Texas had different tax rates, different marketing practices that you had to follow for each, different reporting that you had to follow for each. And for manufacturing brews, you actually had to ha- have two different licenses in order to brew products below 5% and above 5%. Um, and so those all of that went away in 2019, the Sunset Bill as well. So there were... There were in, Beer to Go was definitely kind of the headline grabbing piece. It was the piece mm-hmm. that we focused most of our consumer outreach on and like our, you know, right. it, was the, it was the slogan, right? But um, there were several other big wins for breweries and brew pubs uh, in that bill. So it really was kind of a landmark session for us, um, you know, whole cloth. In in the next session, what are you all hoping to accomplish? Is there anything yeah, that's on the on the radar? For sure. So 2023, we're definitely going to have some priorities. Um, there are things that we'll be rolling out uh, later in the year. Um, but I think they won't be big surprises to anyone who's focused on, you know, what has happened in the last years. You know, we finally got beer to go, mm-hmm. but um, now liquor stores, 
restaurants um, in Texas can deliver and ship alcohol directly mm -hmm. to consumers. Uh, wineries have been able to do that in Texas for decades. You can join a wine club or uh, get a, you know, go visit a winery you love and get a case of wine delivered to your house. So that's something that definitely cropped up as a priority for our members, uh, direct consumer delivery and shipping during the pandemic and something we're looking at for next session, um, as well as things to help multi-location breweries, you know, inter-facility transfer remains like kind of a headache in Texas or very much so a headache in Texas. So that's something we're looking at. I'd love to come back during on uh, closer to session and talk yeah. <laughs> more about these things if you're interested. <laughs> during during COVID, was war breweries allowed to ship beer? Did they make like a special, you know, whatever to allow it during COVID or still no beer delivery at all? No. Or beer we, shipping? Um, I might be like triggered <laughs> thinking back to the early days of the pandemic on this because um, we won't there stay were, long. I promise. Yeah, we'll move on. Yeah. There were states that made temporary allowances for breweries yeah. to deliver and ship beer that didn't, and we—that was our. I mean, early, you know, mid March 2020 was one of our first asks to the governor's office. We ultimately circulated a petition with 32,000 signatures on it from people um, looking to deliver ship beer. We sent numerous letters, um, numerous meetings, and that wasn't something that our members ever got. In fact, we were. Um, after all the businesses in Texas were, you know, understandably uh, limited in the operations that they could provide early on in the pandemic, Texas reopened and then kind of reclosed anything classified as bars. So we had this really, really bad period where, they, you know, movie theaters, bowling alleys, theme parks, all were like open for business without capacity restrictions um, and breweries, many breweries in Texas that were not um, selling more food revenue than they were beer revenue uh, were closed, even outside spaces. So um, it's been on top of all the things that you and your listeners already know about with like supply chain issues and rising costs mm -hmm. and, you know, limited capacity that breweries had, like it's just been a really, really tough two years. Yeah. Now you're making me think back on the early days of COVID and getting, because <laughs> I wasn't, the, there was one thing in, in Texas during COVID and after this, we'll move on. I haven't talked about this much about COVID, but I find it really interesting is they allowed brew pubs to be open if they sold food. So this is in a lot of, like, I, especially Austin Beer Works, because I know that they did the thing where they offered chips and salsa with every order because there was a way to be get around that, correct? Eventually, yes. So we had a couple months where, so this is weird. I, I think all these kind of uh, rules that propped up around the country kind of left some folks scratching their heads of like, what does food have to do oh, with yeah. like public health? Especially in retrospect, now that we know what we know, it's like, shouldn't it just be <laughs> right. like outside's open and not inside, not just like eat food, but not, you know, things like that. So um, you can wear a mask <laughs> when you're sitting like COVID yeah. doesn't like, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, it's funny to think about. We had no idea what was going on. Right. And, and so uh, there were a few months where, so, okay, I think about some other states where they said things like you have to buy food if you're going to sell alcohol. What Texas did, which is really strange, and it, this is going to sound so, <laughs> <laughs> for the listeners at home, I'm just uh, wringing my hair out because um, no, this is going to sound no, very I, Texas. And I will say this, I find, and you know me, I, obviously I'm here now, but I find it very interesting the way Texas handles their laws. And I think, you know, if you raise awareness, maybe, you know, it could always just help. So um, yeah. like you said, it's one of the stricter ones and, you know, just enlightening people, like all the things that, you know, Texas breweries and the guild has had to gone, have had to go through to, you know, I mean, we're the largest state and we produce some of the, like the top 50 breweries, you know, production. It's just, it's fascinating. And I think people yeah. would be interested in learning about it. 
Yeah. Well, here's a little, here's what I have been batting around. I'll get at, this is such a Texas thing. Um, what Texas decided to use as the kind of dividing line for whether you could, you were classified a bar and were shut down in the second wave or could reopen with these bowling alleys, movie theaters, restaurants, mm-hmm. theme parks, all that was um, whether you sell more than 51% food or alcohol in a given year. And the reason they zeroed in on that dividing line is because Texas licensed alcohol establishments in Texas have at the time a different color sign, depending on whether you could bring a gun into the business or not. So <laughs> I did not know this. That, so businesses that sold like more food than alcohol could be considered a restaurant and, you know, people could carry a gun into the restaurant if, you know, uh, and, and alcohol establishments, bars, and many, you know, breweries, wineries, distilleries, people could not carry a gun into the establishment. So I think in like a rush to be like, how do we define what's a bar? They kind of latched on to like that as the metric. Um, and so that's, that's how it came down that like some, a lot of brew pubs and even made, I guess, technically some manufacturing breweries that had a restaurant on site and sold a lot of food um, could, could be kind of stay open from the, from the bat. Um, but then a lot of folks that didn't have that were shut down. And then it took, it took many weeks of the TABC and the governor's office and industry stakeholders, you know, prodding to get them to kind of create a new process by which someone could temporarily become one of these establishments that sold Mm -hmm. more food than beer. And so that's when we got some really interesting and and creative um, enterprising solutions like selling chips and salsa for, uh, you know, $5 that came with a $2 beer or whatever, you know, whatever whatever, uh, combos folks cooked up um, out of that. So it was but yes, uh, that wild time. <laughs> yeah. That is the most Texas thing I've heard since <laughs> yeah. I've moved here that they pretty much just, that's how they figured out was a bar and restaurant was based on guns, right? Yeah. There we go. So I, I don't know if I mentioned this at the start of the podcast, just to kind of listeners, but I'm kind of changing the format of this podcast and, and you know, how I ask these questions and, you know, the, 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 the career focus will still be the same, but I have a lot of this. I'm going to be asking a lot of the same questions for each person. So we're kind of going to move into that section of it. Um, obviously, the Texas Craft Brewers Guild is what you do, but, you know, I kind of want to hear your perspective on some other things just in the industry um, and your job and just, you know, work. You know, big thing for me is work-life balance and managing that. And so... I guess, yeah, we'll start, we'll start getting into that. So my first question is, you know, what brings you most joy in your job right now? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I think without being cliche, it really is the community (laughs) that (laughs) that's the answer you get from everybody. Um, The community that this industry brings. Um, I've been uh, with the guild now since late 2015. I've been kind of a, I guess a plugged into the Austin beer community since about 2012 or so, so about a decade. Um, and I, I get so much joy from um, just seeing people support each other, um, particularly women in this industry with my time with Pink Boots. Um, I, especially I've like met so many awesome women in this industry. And so seeing people really, you know, pull each other up, um, follow their passions. I've seen so many people now, you know, come from working at other breweries or beer bars and start their own businesses um, in that time. Mm-hmm. Um, has been really cool. So the guild is really, I, I, I think our um, board, former board chair, Josh Hare said it best one time that the kind of the, we always hear about the industry is about community, but the guilds, state guilds really are kind of the organized embodiment of that community. And you see 
um, in an organized fashion, breweries sharing knowledge with one another um, mm-hmm. so they can help them make better beer, run better businesses. You see breweries lending each other ingredients and knowledge and coming to help them with you know, something that's broken at their brewery. Um, I, I really like those aspects of this industry. I think it is what makes it you know, a pretty unique industry for, for all its warts, for all its challenges, <laughs> for all the struggles we've been through. Um, I do think there, that that is still very much alive and, and well in a lot of ways. And I could definitely attest to that. Obviously, you know, living and working in another state and moving here in Texas, I mean, we are one of the biggest states and I have never seen a guild so well put together. Oh. Obviously, there are a lot more breweries here than, you know, where I last lived. And it's no secret. I came from Kentucky. Kentucky has a lot smaller beer scene. I get that. But, you know, I've seen you so many times at our brewery bringing, I don't want to say politicians, but important people who work in politics <laughs> to help them see what, you know, we're trying to get accomplished. And I just think that's amazing. Um, I know you have a good team behind you, but yeah, I definitely the the Austin community or Texas beer community is really strong. It's a lot harder to connect with everyone else since we are so spread apart. And that's another thing people don't realize, but you do a good job of kind of bringing or you in the sense of the, the Brewers Guild, bringing everyone together. So kind of the opposite of that question, what frustrates you most about your job? Um, I, I think it's probably some of, going like, back to some of the things we, we have. <laughs> no, honestly, it's, <laughs> I mean, it really is the legislative side of things. Um, mm-hmm. We have been lucky to experience all those successes that I mentioned, but um, the deck is still very much stacked against us. We're still in the eyes of the legislature and a lot of large political donors and stuff, maybe kind of a small fish. Um, and just because something is common sense doesn't mean that um, it will become law. <laughs> and so I, I think just that fight is is just endlessly frustrating. Um, we have powerful interests, particularly in the middle tier and the wholesale tier in the state that um, likes, they, they kind of tend to operate off the Campbell's nose under the tent philosophy. So any change that we push, no matter how small, no matter how shouldn't really have a major effect on their bottom line, if any effect on their bottom line, um, they tend to oppose um, historically um, until dragged like kicking and screaming <laughs> to a negotiating table late in the game if it, if it looks like it actually might have legs. And so, you know, that's, it's just uh, been a challenge. But that's why we do things like you mentioned uh, us coming by your brewery with folks. We have taken staffers on legislative bus tours of breweries to try and, you know, um, kind of win some hearts and minds when it comes to legislative staff so that they can go back and tell their boss um, about the great, mm-hmm. you know, great work that breweries do in their community um, and, and same with legislators. So it's, it's the probably the most frustrating part of this job, but it's also, as you mentioned, uh, when we do achieve success, it's one of the most rewarding parts of this job, man, to be involved in changing a state law that helps hundreds of small businesses is um, really, really rewarding, even if it, you know, I've got a, got a few gray hairs along the way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Another question. What is one thing people don't know about what you do? Like, what if you tell someone what is like, oh, I didn't know that that's something you do. Oh, I think, um, well, it's funny. Some people think, I think, uh, I get the funniest reactions to this job. So we have four uh, employees right now. We've grown our team. Um, and so we have four of us and we have such an incredible team. So I feel like I 
can't even say anything without, you know, shouting them out for, for all the hard work that they've done. Um, and our board of directors as well. We have 11 brewers who are on our board of directors who really help um, guide guide this organization. But it's funny. I think when I meet people, a lot of people are either like, oh, my gosh, you only have four employees. That's insane. Like, it's, it's wild that you all do so much with with such a small team. And then I meet other people who are like, so that's a full time job. Really? You know, <laughs> they, they, they think like that what I do is basically like a hobby. So I, I don't know that I have one answer to that, but I, it's like the two pretty like polarizing ends of the spectrum mm-hmm. that make me laugh as people always seem to think we are either bigger than we are or smaller than we are and right. <laughs> maybe not like an accurate <laughs> depiction of, of, of our, our true um, kind of uh, size, I suppose. <laughs> so the, the Texas Craft Brewers Guild, you have a DE and I, is it a subcommittee essentially? Yeah, it's a subcommittee of our membership committee. So, you know, Obviously, you were involved in getting that started because you were working with the guild that time. Uh, why was that important um, for the guild to start that subcommittee? You know, it's something we had been talking about for several years. Um, and then our um, membership and business development manager, um, Meg Ellis, one of our team members, she's like really been instrumental in spearheading and shepherding that group. Um we started to hear from some members who were interested in the creation of a committee like that. So they were some of the first people we went to um, when starting to kind of get the bones of that around and say, all right, let's, it's time. Let's like put our money where our mouth is and, and get this going. So um, it's been going for a few years now. Um, it really, again, it's been kind of, a, obviously there's lots of ongoing dialogue in our industry for years now, but um, 2020 was definitely a um, galvanizing time for that committee. Um, and um, as I think Dr. J um, from the Brewers Association, which I'm sure many of your, your listeners know, um, has a really She's interesting- She's been on frame. this podcast. Oh, yeah, great. Past guest. Yeah. I think she has an interesting framework um, that she shared with us guild leaders around kind of like when to make a statement on something. Um, and it's basically like, do you have the credibility to speak on this issue? Um, do you have the- um, capacity to speak on this issue. I'm going to, I'm going to butcher the three C's and they're really good. So I kind of want to pull them up almost. <laughs> um, but um, I think that was important for us to see like what, especially at the events of the last two years, you know, I, like we have a majority female staff actually. Um, and it, and we did at the time actually when, when um, Brianne Allen's um, post on Instagram really a- activated our industry um, after that. And there's just been a lot of complicated feelings around like, okay, like, what do we say? What do we do? While I'm also processing for myself and for the women I know through Pink Boots that we're having like really open conversations about, about um, what's going on in our industry. So, you know, it's, um, I don't know, maybe it's been like kind of that, uh, put your oxygen mask on first (laughs) um, philosophy of like, we had to kind of, I think we needed to do some work internally in order to be able to do some work externally for our members, you know? So we needed to get together. We formed governance for our committee. We started to look at tools and programs and things that we could implement. Um, we have a partnership with WeVow now, so our members can get um, a discount on um, reporting software. It's also something a tool that we can use internally for our staff. We started implementing. We already had a code of conduct um, for a few years, but we really started to kind of bolster that, make sure we were promoting it at our events um, so that it became more of an attendee-facing code of conduct with a reporting tool as well. Um, we made sure, you know, it's just been a lot of different, um, kind of projects culminating together, but, you know, obviously it's important. It's, 
I don't think these are issues that are unique to the beer industry by any stretch. Um, mm -hmm. But certainly there's there are some aspects of being a, a young industry, um, being kind of at the, um, you'll, you'll hear that like reports of things like sexual harassment are high in hospitality, obviously, and then also high in like manufacturing industries. And we're right at the Venn diagram of that. Right. So there there are some unique things about this industry that um, um, might may accelerate some of those issues. And, you know, it's our industry. So even if it's not unique uh, to our industry, we still have a responsibility to try and try and tackle some of those things and educate our members. So what would be your advice, you know, to, you know, whether that's other guilds or breweries or just anyone listening to how we can continue you know, we've started the committees, we've done the, the, the collaborations, you know, whether, whether souls is San Antonio. So it's like that started in Texas, what can we continue to do? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, and people, I think this goes to so many things in life, but like setting yourself up um, for long-term change and long being able to push and, and have the capacity to, focus on issues long-term is so important. So I think a lot of these collaborations, especially something like Black is Beautiful that we're so proud that Marcus started right here in Texas, um, were huge um, yeah, spotlight moments for our industry. Um, and I know mm -hmm. people like Marcus are thinking about this too. It's not just, it's not that those collaborations stop there very much, not so they're, they're still going and they're still bringing change, but yeah, it's keeping it front of mind, but also setting yourself up to know that like, it doesn't happen overnight. And um, and sometimes kind of the most incremental change, um, especially for organizations like ours, you know, can can um, it can really be what's important in the long run, if, if that makes any sense at all. <laughs> I'm like, I, I wish I knew a, a perfect answer yeah. to this because I mean, we, we are all figuring but... it out together. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and it's hard too. like for us as women. I mean, I've had this experience talking with other women in the industry. It's like, man. Sometimes it can it can be hard to be a woman who's a leader in this industry because um, you take on uh, right you, like you, like I, I've had so much mixed feelings about this like it's particularly when it comes to this because like all right we we owe it to other women in this industry to be a voice for this to push mm -hmm. forward um, but also it's like man some of this work needs to be done by men also to be right. frank you know yeah. and you kind of feel that like like it, it can't always be on um, the victims of this the survivors of this this kind of stuff right. to um, to lead the movement. So uh, yeah, sometimes I have conflicted feelings about that. It was probably more, uh, <laughs> you know, just it's ongoing. Um, and yeah. I, I'm, I'm proud of where we, how far we've come. I'll say, obviously, I think it's, um, I was, I was, I guess, heartened to see that not many of those, the thousands of stories that came out um, were about Texas. I think there were other communities across the country that were, were really reckoned with, a large volume of stories uh, coming out of their communities. Um, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen here. And it doesn't mean it's, right. you know, again, it's not even specific to our industry. This is just like life, you know, so. Um, and and it, you know, we're yeah. in it. So we, you know, when Brianne pushes, you know, does all that, we see it because we're in this industry. I'm sure if right. it might have happened in some other industry. We're just not tuned into it as much. Yeah. Kind of on the. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say it's it's like ripping a bandaid off, right? Yeah. So it's um, while that was hard and painful to see all those accounts, um, it is yeah, kind of the, the first step to hopefully healing and improving and making sure that people are more thoughtful and treat each other better and and have tools in place to support each other. 
um, when those things happen in secret, when people aren't talking about them, then, you know, that, that wound is only festering, I suppose. And something else that's, you know, really important to me as I've seen, you know, my peers and people who've been in this industry, you know, longer is kind of like a, a work-life balance. Um, you probably, you work a lot, especially when you're in session and you're, you're gearing up for that. What is your best advice of people and just in, you know, maybe it can be beer related, you know, beer industry related, or it can just be in general to not get burnt out or mentally fatigued in what you do? Yeah, this is hard. I, I've seen some interesting statistics about this too, that like, um, so guilds are nonprofits, um, we're trade associations. And I've read that like women who work in nonprofits are some of the like <laughs> most, um, most um, I guess at risk for burnout <laughs> because, and, and someone, uh, one of our brewers actually, we're gonna have a panel about burnout at our upcoming conference next weekend actually. So we've been having a lot of um, very deliberate conversations about burnout lately in preparation for that. Um, and there was a great panel at CDC a few months ago about this that I was in like a packed room of brewers listening to that panel. And so I think a lot of people left that room having, having these kind of conversations um, but one of the, the, another interesting takeaway that came up, um, that, um, Stephen Wagner, who's the, um, general manager of, um, of, uh, Beerberg Brewing here in Austin, he's going to be speaking on part of this panel at our conference brought up that I thought was interesting. He said that like, people don't get burnt out from jobs they don't like or love or feel passionate about. Right. right. Thinking about like your high school job or college job that you kind of just like checked into and checked out of like my first job was working at a cookie place at the mall, <laughs> like that job didn't burn me out, you know, like <laughs> I wasn't going right. home, like, you know, thinking about how I could improve the cookie place or, um, you know, or pushing myself to work, um, over time at, at the cookie place. Um, so I think that's an important kind of just like cathartic thing and, and looking at like, yeah, it, it, it unfortunately makes sense that this could be an issue in, a, in an industry like this where people love what they do and are like genuinely passionate about it. And so often you're, and I feel this so personally, like your favorite hobby <laughs> overlaps uh, so much with your job. <laughs> um, so I think just acknowledging that is a big thing um, for someone like me, who I'm, I'm fortunate enough that my job is, I wouldn't call it nine to five because um, we, you know, we run conferences. Uh, um, we do monthly gatherings that are in the evenings. We have, you know, weekend of travel the last two or three weekends. So Certainly work can take place out of those hours, but like generally it's certainly more of a desk job than working in a tap room or being a brewer for me. So I try like now thinking about these issues um, more as a, as a boss than as a team member. Um, so trying to think about it, even if I'm not always like kind to myself on stuff like this, trying to like facilitate an environment where my team members aren't feeling burnt out. Like I really try to manage communication to not, um, not bug like my employees on the weekends or evenings. Um, mm -hmm. those kind of, you know, unless something were to be extremely important, um, not having like that, uh, not making that work like top of mind off when you're outside of your work hours. Mm -hmm. Like that's like, I think one of the biggest things, right. About like why our work environments now are so different than they were 20 years ago is we're just like the, the technology has been such a gift that we can be in constant communication with each other, but it can also totally contribute to burnout when you have, when you're on the work Slack channel or you're checking your email constantly or getting texts about work, like you're off the clock, but you're getting kind of like sucked into things or you're just like constantly monitoring what is going on on your day off. So then you're like, Oh, I can help with this. And now I'm feeling guilty that I need to help with this. So like, 
right. you know, I know that that advice isn't great for everyone who's like in a production environment <laughs> or in a tap room where your hours are really different and your coworkers' hours are really different. But I guess for people like me who are fortunate enough to have a, you know, somewhat desk job, I um just kind of keeping, um, limiting that communication in, uh, in our, you know, non-work hours um, has been really good for me. Yeah, and I'll add something. I think also you mentioned, you know, people don't get burnt out of jobs they love. I also think mm -hmm. being surrounded by coworkers, you know, that mm -hmm. you enjoy being around is huge, you know. Yes. If you go into a job that you, you maybe not like, but you know that you love the people in your office, you work with, you know, I think that's a huge part, you know. Maybe there's to a point where you just can't tolerate what you're doing anymore. But, you know, surrounding each other with, you know, enjoyable you know surrounding yourself with enjoyable humans plays a huge part in that and you know i've worked so many jobs in my life and i worked retail all through college and it wasn't glamorous but i loved the people i worked with and it, that's why it stuck and then yeah you know and another thing that you said stuck with me is like that guilt you know i work monday through friday kind of like a nine to five job and then there'll be things on the weekend and we'll i'll get like a message or like our weekly recap and they're like yeah we got slammed i'm like should have been up there. Like, why didn't they text me? But, you know, it's, <laughs> I don't need to be up there. You know, that's why we have other people kind of in a higher position to work, you know, those weekends. But, you know, it is, it is hard not to feel guilty and want to be there 24 seven to help, you know, your, you know, I'm a manager just so to help my staff, you know, with any kind of hard issues, but, you know, you just kind of have to trust them that they know what they're doing and that they do, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm the newest member of, my team. So I'm like, they're always asking me, I'm like, I, you all know more than I do. I, and I trust you. And <laughs> yeah. so it's just having to remind myself that, and you know, and you're, yeah, you're right. Having Slack always open and all that stuff, it can be hard, but just knowing to be able to put it down, I think is just incredibly important. And, and then, yeah, you know, beer is a hobby and it's our careers. So it's, you know, I tried, I've really tried to find hobbies outside of beer since I moved here. And, um, plants you plants you can probably see all my plants behind oh, yeah, me yeah snake plants yeah it's become an expensive hobby but it's, <laughs> it's something i've enjoyed doing um that's outside of beer and um now i'm making plant events at the tap room so oh, awesome <laughs> yeah but yeah i i think everything you said was 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 right on and i think that's something i really want to you know talk about you know in this you know next season of my podcast is because it is something so important and something we're seeing more that is talked about within this industry. And um, I just can't wait to hear everyone's perspective um, on it. So continuing with my, my repeat questions, if you weren't working for the Texas um, craft brewers guild, what would you be doing? Oh, I don't, I think about, <laughs> I think about this frequently because I'm like, I have the best job in the world. I really, believe that mm -hmm. and I'm I I would struggle to think um I guess <laughs> like realistically before before I worked for the guild I worked in film and video production um so I was a, a PA on a few films and then I kind of found my niche as a production coordinator or producer on like commercial or web content um for different brands um and it was a cool job I actually um really enjoyed it it really was just the beer became like my biggest passion um mm -hmm. and then when the guild was hiring an events manager I'm like man this is kind of the culmination of everything right. that I love personally and like kind of a similar line of work to what I was doing like just moving people and equipment to stand up events and um break them down <laughs> basically 
Um, so I, I probably would still, like practically speaking, I would probably still be in that industry. Um, and I'd probably still mm-hmm. be working in production, um, which um, was, was a neat industry. And I'm always yeah. excited when there are ways that they like overlap a little bit. Like we've done mm-hmm. a little bit of video content for the Guild and that's always exciting. And, you know, so probably that. All right. Now I have three final questions, but these are a little bit more fun. Cool. If you could drink one beer for the rest of your life, what would it be? Pilsner's. Any specific? Oh, <laughs> oh, I guess I'll leave it at that. I always struggle with uh, yeah. checking. Yeah, I mean, you have like <laughs> lots of children. It wouldn't be fair to pick a favorite, but I thought I heard it's- you say Pearl Snap. Did you say Pearl Snap? <laughs> I'm just kidding. She didn't yeah, say yeah. Pearl Snap. But it's definitely a frequent mainstay in my fridge. And I will say we're yeah. lucky to have um, so many great loggers in Texas. Yes, and funny do. enough, this, yeah, this year we actually... Um, was the first year we had our Texas Craft Brewers Cup, uh, a beer competition that the Guild ran in Texas. And our largest category was actually Pilsners, um, which I think is very uniquely Texan and was was pretty cool. So um, Pearl Snap among them, we have a lot of awesome, awesome choices. <laughs> I really, you know, I, I it's so cool because I get to try all these new Texas beers. Um, I really enjoyed St. Arnold's Summer Pills, which was oh, yeah. That one was, I'm actually, I'm going to Houston next weekend. So I'm excited to check them out and, and drink oh, one in person. Man, they have such a beautiful beer garden. I was there probably two or three weeks ago and I, yes, had my fair share of summer pills. So <laughs> definitely, definitely don't miss. <laughs> if you could take a beer vacation right now, where would you go? Um, it has been um, a few years, I've been to Germany a couple times, um, which I love, and it's definitely been since before the pandemic. So I think I would love to go back to Germany um, and go to some cities that I haven't explored yet. Like I'm speaking of Pilsners, I've never been to Pilsen, um, which I think would be neat. Um, and there's there's just some different parts of Bavaria I haven't had the pleasure of visiting that I would like to like go and spend a little more time there. And I'd love to go back. I've been to Munich a few times, so I'd love to go back there. And um, I, I love that city and just that part of Germany. Be cool. All right. Last question. Who would you most love to have a beer with? Dead or alive? Doesn't matter. I will say Dolly Parton because that was just the first person that came to mind. And I yes. think that'd be great. You know, I, I've asked this question before and it's one I wanted to continue asking. I don't think she's ever been said. And that's oh a fantastic gosh. answer. She is. I'm a big, 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 big Dolly stan over here same that makes two of us yeah i think that would be really fun (laughs) yeah that's a great answer i'm gonna change mine (laughs) we can all get a beer together (laughs) yeah how do we get her out to texas yeah right (laughs) there's a very good podcast on her her life or her career i forget what it's called but i'll send it to you after this and is it is fantastic i don't know if you've listened to it but dolly parton's america i think it's called yeah yeah have you listened to it okay yeah it's great yeah agreed (laughs) i recommend it to kind of everyone who likes her but because it will make you like her even more yes absolutely yeah i love that podcast my dog is actually named jolene so i've (laughs) i'm always thinking about dolly (laughs) oh i did that's awesome i don't i don't think i knew i knew you had a dog but yeah such a great name i would i would well maybe not because i would sing jolene all the time to my dog and they would probably get annoyed i mean it's it's actually the same for me i feel like everyone invents songs for their dog i mean maybe not everyone but like i i do and uh, i would and so yeah. the fact that she already has one it's it's actually really convenient 
you'll get to know me a little bit more i'm that type of person that will yeah and sing songs to my dogs they're yes both right next to me as well <laughs> well caroline i really appreciate you hopping on here with me finally and being kind of the first first guest in um and this this new you know I, I keep saying season i guess it's the easiest way to describe it of this podcast and i really appreciate it and it was nice to finally meet you in person and then now i get to see you a little bit more often and um i think what you and um the people at texas crappers guild are doing some incredible things you know getting things passed here even though it is a little bit stricter here in texas and um yeah i will say it again you are one of the most well put together guilds that i've experienced so um again you know i can speak for myself and then you know other breweries here in in, in Austin and in Texas that uh, we're lucky to have you. Thanks, Kenzie. This was awesome. I appreciate you having me on and I will be by soon to try that new like Michelada inspired beer that y'all released. I'm really excited about that. <laughs>